The Andy J Podcast. The Andy J Podcast. The Andy J Podcast. Hello, you. Welcome to the very latest Andy J Podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're really well. I've missed you. Sorry we weren't here last week. Um, that was simply because from all our analytics and body feedback things that you get and you get so much detailed stuff by the way about the kind of people that are listening and how long they're listening for and so on we've learned that you guys prefer the long full-length chats the in-depth hour-long plus conversations with our guests and last week we had a couple of shorter ones for you with Vanessa Feltz and Julia Hardy both lovely chats with lovely lovely ladies but the feedback has been that you guys would rather hear the long stuff so we decided to sit tight and uh, use those conversations on a radio show so this week we have a really really enchanting enthralling fascinating chat for you with one of the best authors of the moment but I just want to share with you as well that in the run-up to Christmas we have some amazing guests guests that we are really looking forward to bringing to your attention. We have three musicians to come before Christmas. James Arthur, who incidentally, one of his songs has had nearly two billion listens on Spotify, which is just... (laughs) Wow. Talk about the definition of success for a song. We also have Example, who is just brilliant. Brilliant, fascinating bloke. Good friend of mine. Top, top man. And the lovely, enchanting Katie Mellower. So all three of them still to come before Christmas. And on a non-musical front, we also have Dom Jolly, the man behind Trigger Happy TV. Brilliant travel writer. Fascinating guy. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant company. Comedian and, and various things to his name. He wears many hats and he's a very, very interesting chap. So all of those, plus a few more treats that I'm going to keep up my sleeve for now to come before Christmas. So if you're a new listener, if you're not yet a follower, subscriber, whatever you want to call it, then please just click that button that gets you alerted when there's a new episode and means that you won't miss a thing because I can tell you the run-up that we have to Christmas is pretty special. And some of the names we've already got in the diary for next year, early next year, oh my goodness, I mean, it's pinch myself stuff. So I'm, I'm delighted and excited and can't wait to share. Back to today, Matt Haig is our very special guest, number one best-selling author, Reasons to Stay Alive, Notes on a Nervous Planet. He's had six highly acclaimed novels for adults, including The Midnight Library, How to Stop Time, and The Humans, all of which I would thoroughly recommend, incidentally. What an author, what a... What an imagination, what a way with words. He is quite, quite excellent. He's also a writer of award-winning books for children, including A Boy Called Christmas, which is currently being made into a feature film, which I believe is out very soon with some huge stars in it, uh, and his latest for kids, which is A Mouse Called Mika, which follows on effectively from A Boy Called Christmas and sees things from a different perspective. Great, great fun. What a guy. Now, if you are familiar with Matt's story, if you follow him on social media, if you've come to him because you're a Matt fan, you will know that... The Reasons to Stay Alive, his one of his early novels, was where he shared, novel isn't right actually, it's, it's a very personal story, where he shared his truth when in his mid-twenties, early twenties in Ibiza, he very nearly took his own life. He was in an extremely dark place and he explains that and he talks about it and he's extremely open about mental health and as you can imagine this conversation will have plenty of that there's lots of light and laughter and love and joy as well as we like to have permeating through all our conversations but I just wanted to let you know as well there will be some extremely deep and uh, mental health skewing conversation as well thank you for taking the time to choose us I hope you enjoy this I think it's a special listen so here is Matt Haig. Andy J Podcast.
Now, I'm delighted to say, for this show, I am joined by an author whose words have inspired, encouraged, comforted, and entertained millions of readers around the world. His rich and diverse body of work includes incredible stories like the Midnight, Libra- the Midnight Library. There are reasons to stay alive. Of course, you already know who I'm talking about. There are many more that I could be citing, but we'll be getting onto those because I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Matt Haig. How are you doing, Matt? I'm very well, Andy. Very nice to speak to you. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Do you know what, Matt? I, I have been thinking about this chat for some time. And, and this is really, I'm sharing this, I'm oversharing from the outset. This is fascinating for me because one of the pleasures of my job is I talk to people that I'm inspired by that I think are brilliant. Every week it's, it's an honour. But I, I have found myself approaching this conversation with you differently today. And I've realised that it is because, in my head at least, you are very important to a lot of people. And therefore I feel a responsibility to do this conversation justice. Does that make sense? Um, well, yeah, very nice of you to say. I mean, yeah, I, I sometimes, uh, this year in particular, I felt a little bit of that responsibility myself, and I find it um, quite quite stressful. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm looking forward, because I, the, the lucky thing about my career is that because I flit around between writing for grown-ups, writing for children, non-fiction, fiction, I can, you know, when things get a little bit too heavy, like if I'm writing too much about, say, mental health or whatever it is, I can then suddenly write a story about Father Christmas or, you know, um, talking animals, and I can sort of find my escape from that responsibility and just, you know, write something very uh, immature and fun. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. Anything, anything around the whole sort of mental health conversation, you have to be, I suppose a bit sensitive and you know I myself have got things wrong before and you know I, 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 I know the need to um, yeah not say not say wrong things I suppose yes it's it's a curious one it, I guess perhaps you feel slightly monitored or observed because the people that you have touched have often had troubling times and therefore you've been something of a shining light for them well yeah I mean I've had a lot of uh, yeah people who um, obviously, find some, say a book like Reasons to Stay Alive. They, they find it at a very difficult point in their life, not necessarily going through mental illness. But, so yeah, it's it's um, it's it's interesting how different people uh, you know come to my work uh, for different reasons. But at the same time, I'm I'm still you know I still just want to write things that are are, are very readable and entertaining for people and. Um, you know, so even though something like Midnight Library has themes of mental illness and suicide and heavy stuff like that, I also wanted to make it a kind of page turner, entertaining plot story, all of that stuff. And actually, I'm starting, you know, the stuff I'm writing now, which is obviously a long way off being published, stuff I'm writing now has almost nothing to do with. Um, the kind of things I've been writing. Uh, I'm, I'm currently writing about a jewel thief, for instance. So I'm, I'm sort of like trying to just, you know, write a inverted commas normal novel about you know things that aren't necessary too um, heavy duty, but uh, just to sort of, well, I suppose selfishly, just to give myself a break from always thinking within that uh, sphere. Yes, because it can be very tiring, and and there's a great kind of burden of responsibility on those words, presumably. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I also feel like I'm reaching the point where I've said what I've needed to say regarding uh, mental health. I've had, you know, hopefully, like a lot of other people, I've added a bit to the conversation, destigmatized certain things. You know, the more we talk about it, the more, you know, the less stigma about talking. Um, you know, it happens, uh, especially for men, and, and that's all good. Um, I just feel like I struggle, you know, like like the, the last book I wrote about mental health was a book called um, The Comfort Book, and that was very general. That wasn't really specifically about mental illness. That's just that concept of comfort, things that comfort me. We've all needed a bit of comfort, you know, during these sort of pandemic years, and it, it was very, very, you know, only in the sort of most general sense was it a mental health book. But I think that was a, my sort of farewell and goodbye um, to that until I have something new and fresh to say on it. Because I think with the, the main thing about books is you, you want there to be a reason for the book to exist because it's quite a self-indulgent thing to just sit there and think, oh, the world needs another uh, one of my books out out there. So, so there has to be a legitimate reason. And normally the reason is that the book doesn't exist unless you wrote it and therefore you have an incentive to write it and I have to say because I've written quite I mean I've written three um, books that are non-fiction that are about mental health and I've written a novel Midnight Library which overlaps with some of those themes um, I'm kind of itching to sort of like step outside that space a little bit and sort of you know show people that there's a little bit um more to me than just that. But it has been nice as a writer to feel like you've done something that's a bit useful to people because a lot of the time when you're writing um, novels, you're hoping you're entertaining people, but you're not necessarily providing anything of any kind of practical use. And even though um, my mental health books aren't really typical self-help books and that me not being a doctor or a therapist, I don't actually offer instructions or timetables or you know a diet or uh, an exercise routine or you know breathing techniques I, I it's very much just articulating my own subjective experience but I think even that people like that because I remember when um I was dangerously ill um what the only thing that ever got through to me was people who had been through it um for instance, my mum, who, you know, she, she's got all sorts of theories about um, health and where you should go to help. She, she forced me to go along to her homeopath to um, get get help, get some tinctures for um, depression and stuff. And, uh, and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sort of this homeopathy, but it, it didn't actually do anything for me. But what did do something for me was speaking to the homeopath who themselves had ha- had been through a long patch of feeling very low and suicidal and, and depression and all the rest of it and there they were in front of me sort of smiling and through it and that actually was a real help to me at the time to actually be in the same room as someone who had clearly been through a house place so so the most i um you know i can offer people i suppose in those books is is the sense that um when you're at that point where you feel like there is no future, that nothing is going to improve, where everything in your mind is very catastrophic and the worst is going to happen at any given moment. You know, to just just remind people that that 
is that perspective is a symptom really it's not a symptom of reality it's a symptom of your brain in that moment in time and it and it's very you know it's very hard to see the bigger picture you know when you're at the bottom of the valley you have the worst view of um the landscape and and similarly with depression you're very much sort of at that bottom of the well and you can't see you can't see things clearly so that's what i try try to do with the, the non-fiction books certainly so i don't think it's been useful in the sense that people live by them or you know follow uh, follow them i think it's more that you know, when people are feeling like they just need someone that they feel like they kind of relate to or, you know, someone who's got through to the other side. Yes, you've survived and you've shared a very real story. I mean, it's I'm, I'm going to be the most sort of bland version I can think of on this. But but if, for example, you were choosing a personal trainer in the gym, if you wanted mm. to have big big guns as it were you'd probably go to the trainer with the biggest guns you know you'd probably go well that guy knows what he's doing because he's got it rather than necessarily yeah. the person that might look a little spindly no. but but has been doing it for much longer and has all the all the awards and so on that yeah, guy's got big guns so i he's <laughs> going to show me how to get big guns you know so sort of, you know what i mean i'm being as basic as i can because that's what i do yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's that sort of there is that trust there you know, the guy with the big guns knows how to get big guns. You've lived it. You've shared it, which must have, by the way, we'll, we'll come on to this. And I don't want to make this an hour of chatting about depression, by the way, because, you know, like you say, you've moved on. I mean, you, you, you've written the three books. You've you've kind of established that. You've, you've helped a lot of people, but there's a lot more to you. I don't just want to sort of focus on that time in Ibiza and so on. We should touch on it for this new audience that may not be aware of it, but I don't want you to be consumed by it today because I realise that that's a conversation that you probably have had quite a lot and you've had to recycle it a fair few times. Yeah, it's always that's always a challenge to sort of like have something uh, fresh um, to say on it. But I, I also think, you know, it, it's very different. When I started writing about my own experience um, of illness, it was 2014, 2015, and even in that space of a short few years, the conversation has moved on so much. I mean, when I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive, I hadn't really spoken to anyone about, uh, well, beyond my parents and beyond my partner. I hadn't really spoken to anyone about my experience of um, depression and anxiety and panic disorder and all those things. Things which, by the way, you know, I, I, I always try and make this point. It's not like I'm living in Nirvana and I never have any kind of mental health dips or experiences. You know, this year, I because a lot's been going on in my life, you know, I've had various sort of roller coaster ups and downs uh, mentally. And, you know, so I, I'm never writing from a point like I've got all the answers. I'm in the promised land. Follow me. It's much more a case of, you know, I'm still going through this and millions and millions of people are still going through this but you know we're surviving we're thriving we're staying alive and you know that in itself is a powerful message when you need it because yes. when i was um when i was my most uh, suicidal 20 years ago the famous examples of people who've been through mental illness tended to be and it sounds bleak but they tended to be famous suicides you know you had your kirk cobain you had your Sylvia Plath, you, 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 it, it, people didn't really, you didn't really hear that many celebrities outside of possibly a few like Stephen Fry who were talking openly um, about living with mental illness. So 
now we talk about living with mental illness. In the past, the idea was sort of dying with mental illness. You didn't really speak about it until someone, um, you know, had gone yes. too far. So, so I think that is a big, big sea change. And I, I've only been a very tiny, tiny part of that. There was a, you know, a, a very famous uh, documentary Stephen Fry did, I think, in about 2006, uh, Secret Life of a Manic Depressive. I don't know if you remember that, but I do. Actually, um, that, yes. Yeah, that 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 really helped me and a lot of people, and it, it so destigmatized um, depression and uh, things like that. And uh, since that point, the conversation has. Um, grown and grown. Social media has been another massive part of that. Um, I definitely think, you know, it can't end with the conversation. You need to actually, you know, for, for real significant change to happen. And now we're in the middle of um, another epidemic. We're in the middle of a sort of mental health epidemic. You know, the rates, especially among young people, of um, all kinds of mental illnesses and disorders have already visibly risen um, over the last year or so because of um, external circumstances. And, you know, that's probably set to rise for a little bit more too. So we're still, you know, talking about it is not, you know, the answer in itself because we still, they haven't magically made all, all these issues go away. So the conversation sort of needs to lead somewhere. So it's... I liked helping to start that conversation along with hundreds of other writers and um, much more famous people. But um, I, I feel like conversation alone is just sort of step step one. You know, like if you're doing a sort of AA 12-step program, w the conversation is, is, is the first step. Right. Yes, no, that, that makes complete sense. I mean, Matt, you know, you've, you've talked about this, you've written extensively about it, you have sort of called upon the memories many, many times. So, so I won't dwell on it, as I say. The only question I have is that there's a very known moment for you. You were in Ibiza, you were age 24, you'd been experiencing these, these physical issues that, that you, you, you later kind of realised were depression and so on, and this did lead you to um, becoming very close to committing suicide. Uh, mm. Thankfully, you didn't, and you've you've written very eloquently about the idea of what if it didn't happen? You know, you could have ended up ended up paralysed, and then of course you remembered the, uh, you know, the love that you have from various people around you, family, and and your now wife, and so on. Can I, my my question is, yeah. Mac, as as you've asserted, you know, this was over twenty years ago. You know, to most of us that that are you and I are very similar in age, to most of us thinking back twenty years, it, it's just a sort of blurry, hazy something of a yeah. memory. How vivid yeah. is that time for you? It is very vivid. But the problem is with any memory where you talk about it a lot, you're often remembering the remembering. So, yeah. so it, 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 I've written about it so much. I've talked about it so much. I, I never know if I'm actually remembering it exactly as it was or if I'm remembering remembering it. So yeah. it's, a bit, it's a bit complicated. But, but to be honest, all, and it's not just that time, by the way. Every time I've had a sort of bout of, serious depression like i i do tend to remember my memory is not great but i do tend to remember those periods of my life quite um in a pronounced way i think it's because my experience of anxiety and depression it, it kind of sharpens everything it makes everything intense every day seems like a, a year when when you're living through it and um yeah it i suppose it's like 
any bad experience, like a, a, any kind of grief or anything you go through in life that, that is a particularly bad day or week or month, it tends to um, stay with you. So, so often when you're writing about it and talking about it, it's not necessarily a case that you're reliving it or it's it returning to it. Because in a way, it's always been part of your DNA and it's always uh, been there. So if anything, it's more like that therapy thing of letting it go. And um, yeah, that sort of releasing it, like a sort of metaphorical kidney stone or something. You're sort of taking it out of yourself. You know, and I always remember those particularly difficult patches quite well. And as I say, my memory's not not great. Um, does that help, Matt? Does that, does that does that make things better for you in that sense? Because those chapters are so vivid, does that make things better, almost like a roller coaster, so that when things aren't troubling or dark, you appreciate them more? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean. It also, it also comes with a slight um, bit of fear because you're always worried that you're going to sort of have another dip or feel terrible again. But yes, on balance, I think that's true. I think um, I think having been through you know terrible times, we all get through terrible times, but for me, that experience of rising out of them leads to a better appreciation and gratitude. Um, yeah, no, I had a dip. I had a dip this year, and. Um, just waking up with this sort of anxiety, familiar, very familiar anxiety feeling that doesn't really go away. You feel like you're on the sort of downward drop of a roller coaster, um, but without the fun aspect of the roller coaster, knowing it's just a temporary thing and knowing why you're feeling it. And I, I felt like that. And it wasn't really for anything other than I was swamped, overloaded, felt a bit too exposed. I'd been overdoing social media. I'd been overdoing work. Um, you know, uh, had relatives who were poorly with non-COVID related things and just everything was getting a bit too much, worried about my daughter. My daughter was going through her own little health issue and yeah, it was, a, it was just a, a stressful time. But then when you start to feel a bit better, it, it's almost like it was better than before. It's better than the four-year-old because you, you, you actually have that new sense of appreciation for normal things. And, and um, yeah, so I, I don't think it's ever actually worth the going through the anxiety to feel that, but it wouldn't be good if we, we could just have that. And I'm sure some people do, but have that sense of gratitude and mm. normal, normal things and, you know, a, a nice blue sky and all of that stuff um, without having to go through um, the tough, tough times. Yes, it would. How, how have things changed with being a parent, Matt? Because you sort of talked about, you know, your daughter has had some challenges, but if you're in the middle of a spiral yourself, yeah. ha have you had to sort of, I, I don't understand how this works, so apologies for, again for the dumb questions, mm. but have, have you had to sort of try and rise above yourself so that you can be yeah. there as a parent? Or, or have you just yeah, had to yeah, go, yeah. do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I mean, the thing is, even before I was a parent, what I used to be very good at, was masking what I was feeling. Almost too good at it. You know what I mean? That was part of my problem. My problem used to be that I'd, I'd lock things away. Um, you know, I could t turn up at work or function. You know, functioning as someone with depression and anxiety. Often, you know, possibly 
not functioning quite as well as I thought I was, but, you know, I was, I was very good at home. And so I've had years of practice that when I'm in a, 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 bad, a bad patch, um, you know, I'm probably not as on top form or, you know, comedy dad as I try and be when I'm in a good patch. But I, I really, really try and um, protect kids from it. Having said that, I do talk openly with them. I mean, they know what I've written about. They've never written a book called Reasons to Stay Alive. They've been to a few of my events before. Um, and, you know, hopefully the lesson I'm giving to them is whatever you go through, you will get through, uh, you know, in life. So it's not, it's not a, I hope it's not a lesson that, oh, having me as a dad means you're definitely going to, you know, get mentally ill or this is going to happen or whatever. It, it, I hope the example I'm giving is that whatever life throws at you, um, you have it in you to survive it and to thrive and um, to come out on the other side. And I hope that's um, the lesson. I mean, I suppose in other ways, in less obvious ways, it has an impact. Because when I'm sort of uh, going through a bad patch, like a lot of people, I do a lot of displacement activities. So I'll then be on my phone all the time or throw myself into work. So in that sense, I'll have less time less family time, less time with the kids. So that, if I regret anything, it's that, that I've missed too much of them because I've, I've been trying to sort sort my head out or focus on other things. And um, so that's what I had to watch with myself, I suppose. I don't think there's a parent out there, Matt, that doesn't have <laughs> probably continual guilt that one or all their children aren't getting enough of their attention all the time. I've got three boys and I'm constantly worried, have I given the middle one enough time or is the old one needing more of me or the younger one or so on? You know, I think that never stops. Probably when they're even old and you're a grandparent, I I doubt that ever goes away. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's a, a curse of a modern age, isn't it? We have so much distraction we have so much to watch on TV. We have so much to watch on YouTube. We have so much, many emails to get back to. We have, you know, and it, it doesn't stop on a Saturday and Sunday. It's like a continual thing. So the work-life balance, people who are a little bit bad at that, which I have been bad at setting those boundaries before, then yeah, I mean, that's, that guilt's going to be a, a part of it. But, you know, that said, we do homeschool our kids. So I, I do, I do spend, you know, I'm normally in the house with the kids. It's just being able to put um, devices down and actually spend, you know, and, and that's another thing which I have written about before. But I, I, I've been very honest that social media has in the past had a negative impact on my brain and life, like it has on a lot of people. I've got too, you know, wrapped up in what people's opinion is of me and all of this stuff. Which <coughs> I think anyone even in a minute way out in the public eye, it's hard to avoid that. Uh, and the only way really to avoid it is to just put your phone down and get back into life again and not, not be reading what people are saying about you or tweeting at you or, you know, and not judging yourself on other people's opinion. And that, that doesn't just go the negative way, that goes the positive way. Because I, I actually think, you know, when people are gushing over you on Instagram or something or, you know, that's almost as bad because mm-hmm. it, it's still you're still investing you're still sort of giving up your own sense of self-worth and, and handing it over to other people so then you you have that classic thing i read an interview with um 
you know, comedian Tim Minchin um, recently, and he was talking about um, when you're in the public eye and you get too caught up in like being on tour or whatever, and 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 you go from big ego to little ego in in, in like a fraction of the sense that you're sort of constantly penduluming between thinking, oh, I'm great, everyone loves me, and oh, I'm this terrible person, no one likes me, and you know, and and that is just. You have, to, and I feel like we're all encouraged, you know, invest in what other people are thinking about us online. Um, and people who are naturally a little bit insecure, uh, and I'm definitely one of those people who, who was like that, certainly when I was younger. It, you have to almost train yourself and remind yourself that <laughs> your, your self worth, you know, you're not, you're not this amazing, brilliant, perfect flawless person that some people think you are and you're not this absolutely terrible evil you know horrible person that other people think you are you have to just sort of like take everything with a pinch of salt and not invest um too much too much in that and there's definitely been times um in my life where i've invested too much in that and i'm really making a concerted effort not to be posting all the time not to be tweeting all the time not to be worried Who's ignoring me? Who's not? Who's gone off me? All that. Yes. Hello, I'm Amber. I work for the team that bring you this show and the Driven Chat podcast. And we love that you're listening. It would be really cool if you could just chuck us five stars, subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you. The Andy J podcast. Yes, well, I, I have a little suggestion, Matt. I can't believe I'm giving you a suggestion, but yeah, no, nonetheless, do. I'm going to share it with you anyway. Uh, I have been trolled on on Twitter, and I um, I ended yeah. up handing over my account for someone else for a while, and they deleted my entire history and all this kind of nonsense. This is way back when. I don't really do anything yeah. on Twitter these days because I just find it toxic. However, Instagram just pretty pictures. I thought so. I got onto Instagram, and that was all very nice and fine for a while. Until I started realising I was a little obsessing over the like numbers, you know, how many people are liking this and that and the other and so on. And so then I discovered quite recently there's this hide the like count button. Whenever you do a post, you can click on those three dots at the top and you can hide the like count. And although you can, there is a way for, for the author of those images to see how many likes are. It's harder to do it. And I actually, since doing it, I've never checked. And I find that so much better. It makes me feel yeah. so much because I just put it up, I immediately hide the like button, and then I never know how many people are like it, and I stop caring. I immediately stop caring, and it made me feel fantastic about it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I forgot that exists. I had actually heard of that, but thank you for reminding me because I had totally forgotten about it. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's like you, you, as soon as you put like a number on your popularity, as soon as you get over, oh, oh that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling popular today because I have 5,000 likes on that. As soon as you do that, you, 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 you limit, you, you're not raising yourself. You're reducing yourself. Yeah. You're saying, I, as soon as something's a number, it's like a finite thing. You, yes. you know, as a human being, we're all kind of infinitely valuable. But as soon as you start playing the numbers game, you're putting a, a measure on it. So you're shrinking yourself. Just however big the numbers are, you could be Barack Obama, you could be, you know, whatever. As soon as you're placing your self-worth on that, even if it's 20 bazillion, you you are reducing yourself. So, uh, and yet it's so addictive. And they've got, you know, all these Silicon Valley companies, they've got a psychological consultants working out ways um, to make us feel um, addicted and insecure and checking. I mean, but there used to be those horribly unethical um, experiments on mice and rats in the 1950s about addiction. Um, but, you know, they worked out that what makes things addictive isn't 
isn't someone uh, isn't the rat pressing a lever and getting a treat every time a, a rat who presses a lever and, and gets a reward every time they'll, they'll press it every now and again and and likewise the rat who presses a lever all the time and gets nothing soon gives up uh, pressing the lever but the rat who presses the lever and gets a treat some of the time and some of the time gets dissatisfied because it's not there that rat will just keep on pressing that lever yeah. and that's that's all of us uh, on social media when you get caught into it because occasionally something lovely happens on social media and you feel really nice and you've had a nice interaction or a nice conversation or um, post them well and, and you see something you like and, and so you keep pressing it and then you get a bit dissatisfied and oh, I, better, I better post something else up. I better post something else up. Well, that didn't go down well. And I do think work because it hasn't existed that long compared to other addictive substances out there like drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and the rest of it, I don't think we, we're at a full understanding of it as an addictive issue. Yes, it doesn't, um, it doesn't get into our bloodstream in the same way as other addictive behaviors, but actually the definition of addiction isn't about a biological change. It's, a, it's about a behavioral change. And I think if you think of addiction as something that can get in the way of your life, can be detrimental, can ruin a relationship, that you can do it even when you know it's not good for you, but you just have that impulse of it. I think it's, or, you know, by definition, an addictive um, behavior. And, you know, it's, you look at these sort of, private hospitals like the Priory and stuff like that. Um, it, it's one of their most popular courses now is internet addiction. I think it's up there with alcoholism in terms of people actually going to try and... Uh, is that right? Yes, that yeah, makes sense. Detox. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, might be the new, <laughs> it might be the new sex addict, Matt. You remember se- yeah. being a sex addict was a thing for a while, thanks to Charlie Sheen, wasn't it? Um, oh, yeah. But this, <laughs> Tiger Woods. This one feels a lot more real, actually, um, and that it would be affecting a lot more people, if that makes sense. Um, So, yeah, no, I I completely appreciate it. But, yes, hiding the likes, because all you then see are, you know, Matt likes this and others. Well, I don't care how many others, because Matt's liked it, and that's fine. That's all I need to see. You know, somebody's liked it, fine, jolly good. Now I can move on. You know, it's it's, it's refreshing, actually. Um, So I thoroughly endorse that. Matt, can we can we go back to the start? Because we've you know, we've we've kind of gone deep from the beginning, which is great. And I appreciate that. And and, and thank you for it. But I would also like us to have a bit of a giggle and a bit of a chortle and and explore all sorts of things, because you're a fascinating man. You've written a a huge range of things, not just things about mental health and depression and, and connecting with other humans and so on and so forth. But but a wide range of different things. So can we start, I'd like to explore something about your childhood because I have a curious question that you might say is utter nonsense and complete garbage, which would be completely fair if it is, but I'm just fascinated. So so humour me for a moment, if you will. Okay. And that is that the growing up in, uh, school wasn't easy for you. I believe you had the nickname Psycho, is that right? Well, that started uh, on a school trip, yeah. I went, we went on a school trip to the Peak District and I, end, I, I, I'd never sleepwalked in my life before. Oh wow! But, you know, <laughs> and I sleepwalked. In, we were like in this outhouse, this very weird building that used to be stables. The boys were all sort of sleeping in this outhouse. And I ended up, I don't know how it happened, but I ended up smashing a window in my sleep. I, I so, so I literally climbed out of bed. I think I'd been on the top bunk. I, I sort of managed to climb out of bed and was sort of like having an invisible fight with someone. And I, I smashed a window in my sleep. <laughs> and wow. this was at 13 years of age. It's not the age 
to be, you know, your, your, your peer group at the age of 13 as a boy is not necessarily the most empathetic, understanding, yeah. uh, <laughs> in, tune, in tune with the complexities of humanity and the subconscious. So, uh, yeah, that, that was not, so from that moment on, I was like, but it was, you know, it, 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 I don't want to make out I had like the worst childhood ever. You know, I had some really good friends. Uh, I, I, my parents uh, were there, and um, I, I had a great relationship with my sister. I had a really good friend, Jonathan, who I'm still in, in contact with. And um, it wasn't like it wasn't like the childhood where you're sort of locked in the attic, or you know, it yes. wasn't. Like, I don't actually eat coal. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Of course, that, that, oh, there are nuances to everyone's life, and I'm, yeah. and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm picking out some some little yeah, yeah, things yeah, yeah. that I've I've kind of sort of seen in the ether. So I'm not, I'm absolutely yeah. not trying to, to kind of paint a singular picture of your childhood, but you know, yeah. you you had this nickname that I thought was curious. I believe, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you'd also been a little bit naughty and you'd done a bit of shoplifting and you'd, you'd got told off yeah. for that. So got arrested, got arrested for that. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I was, I can, I can, I can remember being in that. Um, in New York on Trent for a couple of hours waiting for my mum to come to the station. <coughs> that was not a um, that was not a fun afternoon. No. And uh, but but you know uh, that had become a bit of a compulsive behaviour. You know, uh, uh, going back to the old addiction thing. I, I because social media didn't exist, and uh, you know, living in New York on Trent, you, you you got your kicks where you found them. And I, I um, what you know, I wasn't a major level thief, but I, I would often like you know going to the pick and mix or whatever, and it become. Um, kind of compulsive little thing, and if if I hadn't actually got caught of that, you know, I'd have probably kept on doing it for quite a long while. So, I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm very glad. I you sometimes need that kind of intervention, don't you? You have to be stopped. Yeah, you have to be told this, yeah. this is wrong. Yeah, I mean, because ultimately, it's that confusing word, isn't it? Shoplifting sounds quite gentle. Stealing, on the other hand, which is what it not is, so good. not so yeah. good. You know, even if it's a few sweets, as you pointed <laughs> out. I mean, I'm assuming it was a little bit more than a pick and mix that got you stopped, because most people have, was, have had it, their hand in the, well, in the cola bottles before. Yeah, no, it, it, it was in boots, where they had a lot of uh, plain clothes Sort of Texas, and I was stealing just to be an absolute idiot to impress my friends. I had stolen what had I stolen? I had some wet look hair gel. This oh, was yeah. still <laughs> end of the eighties, nineties, and the crunchy bar. Oh, wow! I mean, I thought so you, you could throw so CK one into the mix, and you've got the whole trio there, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> you got the whole lot. <laughs> yeah, I think mean, this is. This might have even predated CK one. This was. This was. Yeah, but it was around that time. And um, yeah, utter idiot, um, juvenile sort of behaviour. And yeah, quite rightly, I was uh, picked up. And that that sense of shame and dealing with your mum and everything, it, it just it was like, okay, you know, you grow up now. Anyway, thank you. I mean, at least you've got a, a new title for a future book, which would be Wet Look Hair Gel. Because that, I mean, whatever happened to that? Can you can you still get it? I I've no idea. Uh, no I hope idea. So. I mean, the, the very worst one. Can you remember Sunin? Oh Where yeah, you, yeah. You spray, sprayed on, <laughs> hoping hoping you look like something out of Neighbours, but hoping you look like Jason Donovan, and actually you just look like a, you, you, a custard had fallen on your head, and you're just like, <laughs> I, I had this bright. At one point, I had this very strange hairstyle with my hair. I think it was the age of asymmetric hairstyles, and my hair was all sort of over on one side. And I I, I used to spray spray it. There's some actual photographic evidence of this. And I used to put the sun in hairspray. So I'd have this 
incredibly yellow um, looking um, hair, which is sort of half covering my hair. It, it was a very strange, very strange look, even for the time. It was very peculiar. But, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's the thing, though. Sun in and wet look hair gel would have been a counterbalance. I mean, you would have completely ruined the two separate looks. It's not yeah. a complimentary thing. No, it's definitely not a complimentary thing because the wet looks there to make your hair look darker. <laughs> Brill cream used to have it because it was a bit of a 50s revival at one point. I can remember people on the brill cream. Anyway, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> Happy days. I mean, it's, again, this, I love that we've descended into the silly because that's, that's even better. Because I was going to go down quite a serious path, Matt. I was going to say, you know, with, with being psycho and shoplifting and all the rest of it, have, yeah. you, oh, have yeah. you been atoning for that ever since? But it sounds like this was actually very lighthearted. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, there was obviously... I think basically, like a lot of people, I had issues that I wasn't addressing and was in denial of. And it wasn't just shoplifting, it was like drinking. And, and to be honest, drinking has been, um, I, because, because I'm not someone who drinks every day, it's very easy for me to think, oh, I don't have any kind of issue with alcohol. Um, you, you know, I, I can go weeks without drinking alcohol. And that is true. The problem with me is that, and this happened a lot um, during lockdown last year, actually, is on a Saturday night where I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have a gin. I then have quite a big gin, and then then I'll have another big gin, and and it, it, it's my relationship with drink, with drink, like a lot of British people, particularly male people, you know, it's formed at a young age, and it was very much heavily about binge drinking, and when you've got any kind of mental health issues, it's just it's not good. So you know, uh, uh, I'm getting on for like a hundred days um, sober now and I, I'm just, I'm not I'm not saying I'm, I'm never going to touch a drink again but I'm really wanting to go a long t- as long as possible to see how long I can go without drinking because if I could pick a single thing that impacts my mental health more than any other probably even more than the internet although that is close it is alcohol so I, I, I'm just trying to um, you know not live like a monk but just just to watch myself Yes, I think that's very sensible. But but it's it's interesting when you use the word sober, though, Matt, because that that almost makes you think that you had an alcoholic problem. You just that use of the word, not you specifically. I mean, when one says like, "I haven't had a drink for three years," not but I didn't have an alcohol problem before that. I just haven't had any alcohol for three years because that's a choice I made when a friend of mine died and I didn't think it was the right thing to be doing. I'm oversharing again, so apologies. But when I say to people, oh, I'm three years sober, they immediately think, oh, well, then that must mean he had a problem. It's that it's funny. It's language, isn't it? It's the use of words. Yeah. If you're just saying I haven't touched a drop for through, for, for, for 100 yeah. days, that's completely different to where I've been sober for 100 days. Do you see what I mean? I do see what you mean. And with me, yeah, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I think there's a difference between... <clears throat> alcoholism and say problem drinking i think a lot of people in britain and northern europe we're problem drinkers we haven't got a very sensible attitude sometimes to um drinking and, and especially when a bit of machismo is thrown in you know about having six pints in the pub and all that you know we, we normalize a lot of things that are you know aren't really that good for us but um i think with me i i, I am I, I i find it very often easier to just abstain than to be moderate which you know is something i probably need to work on but it's easier for me to just uh not drink and then i can sort of enjoy myself more rather than having to continually tell myself okay just only have one and you know so um yeah i I just i i find it i don't actually find it hard at all to not drink but um if i am drinking then i end up drinking too much and yeah 
that that's no fun. So, um, and I, I noticed actually that hangovers as you get older. I'm 46 now. Hangovers are starting to become more than a you know you, you feel it into the week, don't you? You don't just oh, yeah. sort of like bounce out of it. So uh, yeah, I, I just think you know trying to do more things that make me feel good and less things that don't. And um, you know, so so I, I I do my running and I sort of get out there and uh, you know. Uh, get out on long walks we've been doing lots of long walks and things like that gentle gentle pursuits but um all that intensity that i, I used to need you know i used to, need to sort of like um escape my own head a lot and stuff like that and, and, and you, you can't do that you can't do that forever because you, you always take yourself with you so there has to come a point in life where you um accept yourself warts and all accept all the uncomfortable bits of yourself and um work your way through well, it's interesting you talk about warts and all because you you had issues with your own face when you were younger. I believe you you, you kind of decided to adopt a surgical approach on yourself at one point. You you cut off a mole yeah. or something. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean it was basically self harm, but I didn't I didn't have those sort of terms to describe it. I, I I had this pretty small mole on my face. I still obviously do have this small mole on my face, and um. Now, in photos, you can't see it, you know. But then, in my own head, I, I just hated having this mole on my cheek. And I, I remember I once sat down next to a, a, a girl I fancied at school or something, and she mentioned something about this mole on my face. And then, from that moment, I thought, oh, my God, it's just hideous. It's going to stop me ever having a girlfriend or, you know, stupid, stupid, silly teenage thoughts. And, yeah, I, I literally tried to talk. I thought, because oh, you know, it'd be better to have a scar than a mole because a scar would be tough. So I, I literally, <laughs> uh, again, this is turning into a therapy session, but I, I took a toothbrush and, and rubbed, scrubbed my own face to create a scar over the mole. And, uh, you know, oh, wow. utterly, utterly stupid and utterly painful. And, um, yeah, I, I, again, this is going back to having issues and not being aware you have issues. You know, the shoplifting, this, binge drinking and stuff you know it's all issues that, that you can pretend aren't issues but you know at the end of the day it's going to catch up with you and it caught up with me a few years later obviously when i had a full-blown breakdown i had to deal with everything but um yeah not good yes these are the sort of they're the midget gems that we put in our pick and mix aren't they they're the, the things that fill our bag and that's okay. that, that's what you become uh, i mean okay let, let's talk about obviously the, the, the challenges matt when when i sort of talk to you about things in your past or, or what sort of comes on with your future. There is that sort of thing hanging over us, which is what, what you did age 24. So can we ignore that for a moment? And I realise that's a strange thing to say to somebody that has, you know, it, it's such a defining yeah. moment for you and, and, and it's kind of enriched all of your writing and so on. However, there was a mat before and there, there has been a mat that has been incredibly yeah. successful after. So let, let me talk to you about the mat that was selling printer ink. I mean, what were you late teens, early twenties? Um, yeah. If I'd said yeah. to you, you know, age 46, you know, you're going to be married, you're going to have kids, you're going to be a staggeringly successful author, writing a, a, a huge variety of books, because that's the thing. We, we touched on it, but we haven't really got into it. You know, there's, there's sci-fi, there's fantasy, there's children's, there's self-help, there's, there's a huge range of books. Not many authors are writing on the scope and scale for which you are. And as you say, you're kind of picking and choosing which sort of genre you fancy at the time, which is fascinating. You're going to have books made into films. I mean, there's a film incoming as we speak. You are what we describe as a phenomenal success. 
if I'd said to you when you were selling these printer inks, this is what you'll be before you're 50, would you have believed me? No, I would have very much liked to have, though. I mean, it was, I mean, going back to that era in particular, you know, doing tele sales in Wembley at the time, and um, no, this was in Croydon. Sorry, printer cartridges was in Croydon. No, no, no. No, Telesales was in Wembley, I believe, if if my tele-sales, research is correct. Uh, yeah, Telesales was in Wembley. I did, also did Telesales in Croydon. I was selling media advertising space. You're just showing off now, Matt. It's stop, with, stop with the humble bags, okay? <laughs> so been, yeah, no, it, it, yeah, in Wembley, I was literally like reading off the script, you know, one of those jobs where you, you sort of change the name of the company and you've got you've got the script, the sales script, and you're spending your whole day phoning people who do not want to hear from you and trying to keep them on the phone as long as possible and getting your commission. And it was just, yeah, not, I, I was just like the worst salesperson ever. Uh, but I had very low confidence at that time. So even the idea, I wouldn't have even been trying to write a book at that point. Um, I, you know, the idea of have, having, let alone the rest of it, but having your name on a book, you know, that would just seem beyond, um, beyond me or what. What I could do at that point, and it sounds funny, and I definitely don't want to, you know, dwell on the mental health aspect. But the thing that actually gave me the confidence to, um, you know, go for it was actually recovery, uh, recovering from that worst first bout of depression, which happened shortly after um, my telesales career, and when I was recovering from that breakdown, because I, I literally felt for a long time. That I wouldn't get over it. That I couldn't get through um, the experience of depression. That this was going to be every day, and the only way out would be total madness or dying or whatever. So, I, I once I'd started to disprove that and to survive and get over it, it almost made me a bit, you know, um, you know, have that twenty-something arrogance or excessive confidence where you think, well, I can, I can do anything, you know, because that was impossible. It was impossible to sort of survive. So actually, next to that, once I'd got through that, even getting like a book deal um, didn't seem that unfeasible mm. because I, I'd already done this impossible thing. So it made me think like, what do I want to do in life? And sort of go for it. And even after I was getting rejection, after rejection, after rejection, and, you know, it, I was literally, you know, the classic case of about 50 rejections and, I didn't. I had this kind of like bulletproof um, determination, which I definitely wouldn't have now if I was starting out now. But because I've just been through that experience, because I was sort of young enough, and I just, I just had a sort of single um, focus on it, and um, it definitely wasn't an easy start uh, to my writing career. And I definitely sort of entered at the most sort of bottom basic level you could do and it wasn't a smooth ride you know after my first three books I got dropped again so I had to start um, from uh, ground zero but I was very very focused on it and um, you know there are bad things about our mind that can can get a bit obsessive but there are also good things because when you sort of get you know channeled on something you can be determined to sort of um, see it through and yeah no I I mean (laughs) This year, I suppose, has been my busiest year yet. In that, there's been three books coming out, a film coming out. But 
The problem is at this point is is appreciating it and staying grateful because when yes. you've had a career for twenty years, you, 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 it's very easy to forget where you started out from and you get swallowed up in the present moment and all the emails transfer and you don't you know so what I've been a bit bad at this year since stepping back and really appreciating it and being grateful and being thankful for all you know the people who've helped me along the way and um, I'm trying um, to do a little bit more of that and to detach myself from the voices because obviously when you get a lot of people um, reading your stuff you can find a lot of negative opinions out there if you, if you went looking for them. You can find people who think you're the worst writer ever, uh, all of that stuff. So you have to you have to just detach and remember remember where you, you started out and not get too bogged down in yourself or too wrapped up in yourself, which is hard sometimes for a writer because you spend your life literally in your own head trying to come to stories. So to actually just you know take a break, get outside. But I will say this: that the, the very best times. Um, are the times away from work. It's still the times with kids. It's the yeah. times sort of in, in, in doing a normal thing. I, I can't. I haven't been. We haven't been on a proper holiday yet since. Um, since we, we had a little trip to the Highlands, which was lovely. Um, but yeah, we're lo- looking forward to going away again and um, doing that. But uh, yes, I think yeah, a lot of it's, us can like, uh, echo that one. Matt. That's uh, yeah. Everyone's missed point. a holiday, haven't they? It's um, yeah, totally. I mean, I've done a lot of travel actually the year before COVID hit, but it was mainly work-related travel. But um, yeah, to go from that to, to nothing was kind of well, like all of us, it was a bit of a shock to the system. But um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to slowing down a bit though, because I've been a bit, you know, writing uh, morning, noon, and night. So it's 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 going to be uh, next year. I'm, I'm very pleased to say there's literally no books, no new books coming out um, by me, and so I think give everyone a little bit of a breather. And, um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to sort of writing about jewel thieves and different things at a slightly more uh, sedate pace. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, look, I mean, a quick note on the naysayers. I would suggest the awards and the sales would be, I would hope, enough to, to kind of prove to you that you're you're doing great things. But but the fact is, Matt, you know, you are a writer. You you come up with wonderful stories. How do they come to you? Because you're talking about slowing down next year, but what if what if you have this family holiday that's that's much overdue? And I don't know how it works with, with writers and and everyone's different, of course. But let's say, for example, you're you're sitting on the beach and the kids are playing in the sea and you're just kind of hanging out, having a lovely time. Could an idea just come to you? Could it just sort of float in? Is that how it happens? Do you just sort of suddenly get inspired, like we've seen Paul McCartney waking up and writing Hey Jude in his sleep, as it were? You know, just, is that how it happens? Or do you have to sit down and actually focus on, okay, what do I want? I want some characters. I want a, a backdrop. I want a crazy universe. And, and I'll sort of put it together like post-it notes. How, how does inspiration happen for you? It's, it's literally the hardest part of it. It's literally the one bit you cannot, well, I can't train myself to have. And it's the bit that most relies on luck. And I think it's a combination of those two things you're just saying. I think you, you do actually have to sort of sit down at a laptop or whatever and really sort of think about the type of book you want to write. But when you actually get the hook for the idea, when you actually get that flash of inspiration, it's often completely annoyingly random. It can just be, uh, you know, my, my, my last idea... I had came while 
I was on a treadmill, you know, just sort of running along and I just, just suddenly got something. And it's often actually when you're not overthinking it and you're not trying too hard, your brain needs to know that you are actively searching for an idea or something. But but when it actually happens, it's just uh, that's, that's a lovely feeling. Like the Midnight Library came to me kind of in one go. I'd wanted to write about Parallel Lives for Ages, but I didn't have a good enough hook. And then I got the Midnight Library and I thought, okay, I could use that. Uh, and that's great. But yeah, there's, I think it's um, Neil Gaiman or someone talks about how there's no magic cupboard that you can go to and just open and get your your inspiration out or your ideas. There's no ideas covered. So, um, yeah, it's the big question mark. It's a big mystery. So, so I think that's the fear as a writer. And I think with me, the reason I've written um, so many books in a relatively short amount of time is because you're always worried that you're going to run out. You're going to run out of ideas. <laughs> yes. It's just going to try up. So, so, so you see, get them all down where you can. Um, That's what Jamiroquai did, isn't it? J, JK said he'd banked enough hits to last him till he was in his 40s when he was a you know late teenager or something. He's, he's written all the songs. So while he's yeah. successful, he's got them there. You know, while he's got, yeah, got the inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Buy another car or whatever he does. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. No, um, it's true, and I, I think, yeah, I think, I think, ideas. Idea, so, I mean, there are the ideas that actually you do have to really work out, and um, I think, yeah, Stephen King said something about how there are two types of books. There's the book that just everything feels easy, everything falls into place, it, it goes well, the story's there, it comes complete, and then there's the book where every chapter, every sentence, it's like you know dragging that boulder up the mountain and it, it never does it and both of those ways can lead to great books and both of those ways can lead to bad books and there's, there's no um magic uh formula to it but you know for me i i prefer obviously as a writer the easier way to do it so i'm, I'm always thinking if i if i've got a lot of few ideas i'm quite bad at working out which will actually be the best so, I, so in that case, I just work out, okay, what's going to be the most fun to write? What's going to be the easiest to write? What, what, what could I actually write? Start writing now and have to go with that one because it's, it's hard to mind read um, what readers are going to think, especially with fiction. I don't know why. With nonfiction, with, with the sort of mental health books, you have a prediction about how things are going to go and you're not always 100% accurate, but you have an idea. With fiction, it's always mysterious you never know the ideas which are going to sort of like set a light and the other ones that are going to be a bit of a damp script so it, it, it's it's always a uh, you always have to rely on your yourself really. yes. you can't you can't mind read the market or um, try and work out what other people want and on a practical level Matt how how do you manage it because you mentioned earlier that you you homeschool your children and I believe yeah. you know you sometimes you've sort of commented that you'll sit on the sofa with the laptop and just sort of start bashing out the story. How do you shut out the house, as it were? Well, actually, I don't. I'm a, I don't actually want to. I'm not one of those writers who needs silence. <laughs> I think part of that is I actually have tinnitus. So if I have total silence, it's not really bad tinnitus, but I always have a little low ringing in my ear. So I actually welcome back that noise, and I like being around people. So. Um, in our house, uh, we've got a small garden here in Brighton and got a shed in the garden. The original plan was to be a bit like Roald Dahl and have a writer's shed where I'd sort of go out and uh, have a separate space and write. And I, it just didn't work at all. Um, it felt too much like 
going to work. So, so I like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I tend, it's not very healthy, but I tend to sort of like write in the house and have a lot of noise around me. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It just seems to work for me. I, it, it, I'm not a sort of writer's room kind of writer. I just sort of, yeah, do it, do it where I am. Clearly works. It clearly works because of all the wonderful products that's that's come out of you. Uh, are you excited? Are, are you looking forward? Uh, are things are things good? Are you in a good place? I am. I am looking forward. I'm I'm feeling like I'm at a bit of a turning point uh, in my career. I feel like the last five years I've been, you know, going one way, and I, I feel like I'm about to sort of start some fresh things and maybe a little bit of a slower pace maybe sort of crafting them a little bit at a, at a slower pace but I'm kind of looking forward to that so yeah I'm feeling very um, ready for new things Exciting times and of, and of course you've got all these wonderful sort of famous faces around you as well Meghan Markle calling and, and you know Stephen Fry endorsing you and so on, does does that feel a little bit weird? It's totally weird, it's so totally weird um, and uh, yeah, uh, but I have to say my life is very um, celeb-free in terms of my actual life here in Brighton. I don't actually have any um, famous chums who I'm, I'm sort of WhatsApping all the time. I, and <laughs> we, 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 yeah, so I'm not I'm not really in the um, celeb circle. Um, um, but most of my friends are very happily not famous. And, this is not um, the story I uh, wanted to hear, Matt. I would, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking Brighton, so it's Fat Boy Slim. So you got Norman Kirk. You know, well, I ran past him. I ran past him the other day. But <laughs> yeah, just, he is fast. By the way, I have to say he is. He is like a wicket on that on, on Brighton Seafront. Anyway, well, of course, no. he's got he's got one four eight BPM in his mind the whole time. Hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. He literally exactly, can't yeah. slow down. <laughs> yeah, it's putting me to shame. But. Um, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not in a set. I'm not in. I'm not in the clique. I'm not. Yeah, afraid not. I'm just very. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, um, me and the dog and the neighbours and uh, uh, friends that I've known for about thirty years. I think that's probably the best way to keep it, isn't it, Matt? You know. I think so. I think so. Stay, stay grounded because you, you know. Again, the, the internet's got a lot of time for when you sort of lose yourself and you start believing your own hype, and it's good to sort of like keep your feet on the ground and it keeps you sane yes yes absolutely i once had a twitter conversation with uh, brian cox and i can remember thinking oh, oh my word I, I must have made it now you know <laughs> <It's> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> utterly ridiculous what a silly thing to do so, <laughs> yes it. it's mad how we assess ourselves matt it's it's been such a revealing and fascinating conversation uh, thank you very much for your time oh thanks man. they really like that and even though i was treading over old ground it felt like I'm talking new words and new things so it's very good I enjoyed that thank you so much the Andy J podcast well there was Matt I thought he was remarkable I really enjoyed his company I love his books and what a guy what a guy really really great conversation fascinating bloke I hope that those of you that were seeking some help and seeking some reassurance I hope Matt has brought some comfort to you of course, he has the comfort book out now as well, which is designed to do exactly that. And for those of you that just like to hear these fascinating characters, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed having it. It was a privilege. I can tell you that in the next few weeks, I mentioned this at the start, we have some amazing guests on the way. James Arthur, Dom Jolly, Example, Katie Mellower, and a few more that I'm not going to tell you yet. A couple more Christmas treats. So thank you for choosing the Andy J podcast. I really appreciate it. Walk well. Have a wonderful day, evening, week, month, whatever works for you. Go out and make someone smile. 
see you soon. Bye bye. The Andy J Podcast.